Good morning to our UK column viewers and listeners. I'm joined today by Tony Shingler. Now this gentleman I have known about for some time and that was thanks to the efforts of his very brave wife Nicola who first contacted me back in 2021 on the subject of vaccinations and uh, she told me a story about Tony, her husband and the fact that he'd been adversely affected following his, his own vaccination. And that led to a, a very interesting interview, which we did as a, uh, an audio interview. Uh, Nicola just spoke to me, we didn't make her visible, um, but she gave a very detailed account of what had happened. And uh, at that stage, Tony was in hospital I had a little bit of contact with the family in the subsequent months, um, but uh, I was only able to understand that uh, Tony had a very difficult time in hospital. And I'm delighted that today he's very much out and about, but he's going to join us uh, to tell the UK audience about his experiences and really what, what he thinks about uh, the vaccine program. So Tony, if I can bring you on screen and say thank you very much for giving us some time today to talk about your experiences. Uh, thank you, Brian, for inviting me. I've given a little bit of the background that got going, but I just want to add a little bit more for our audience, because after we put up the audio interview with Nicola, where she was telling us very factually what had happened, she was talking about your condition, Tony. She was also talking about uh, advice and comments that she'd received from the medical staff in the hospital and on the particular wards that you were, you, you spent a lot of time on that ward. Um, we posted the interview on YouTube. So it was Nicola's testimony as to what had happened. Um, we put it up on YouTube and in a relatively short space of time, YouTube decided that that interview should be taken down as misinformation. Uh, we found this to be, felt that this was outrageous because essentially Nicker had been very brave in standing up to say what had happened to you. Um, but the, for us, it was compounded a few months later when the Daily Mail picked up on the story and they printed of course, exactly the same thing, a little bit more detail because some more time had elapsed. But the Daily Mail, for some reason, were allowed to keep their story, whereas the UK column was silenced. But the important thing is, uh, Tony, that you're out of hospital, you're with us today. Where would you like to start? Can you take us back to your uh, decision and then your experience following the vaccination? Yes, um, it all began in March uh, 2021. I was, like everybody else, going to work, um, looking forward to the next holiday with the family, so on and so on. Um, got my text message from the doctor's surgery to go for the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine, the first AstraZeneca vaccine, um, which I did. I, I attended, and it was very quick. 20 seconds and I was out of there, had me vaccine, went home. Um, <clears throat> carried on with work that next week, uh, started feeling a bit weak. Um, 
and the second week, excuse me, <coughs> on the second week, I started even getting even, even worse. I felt really lethargic. My legs were aching. I was getting pins and needles in my feet and my hands. Um, on the, the the end of that week, on the Friday, I went to work, but the health and safety officer sent me home uh, because I couldn't could hardly walk. I tried to get into my doctor's, who said he would call me back the next day on uh, a phone call, consultation on a phone call. Um, me and my wife felt that was a bit that would be too late because I was in pain and I'm, I knew something was seriously wrong. So I attended my uh, local walking centre. We sent me to A&E after an assessment. Uh, I went to A&E and the first time they sent me home with uh, an allergy, didn't tell me what it was an allergy to, but I've never suffered from allergies anyway, not even a fever. So I came home, went through that night, um, got up the next day, felt even worse after that. Uh, ended up ringing an ambulance again to take me back into hospital and they sent me home a second time with um, sciatica. I've had sciatica in the past, I know what that feels like, so uh, I knew it wasn't sciatica. I even know how you test for sciatica. Um, I spent that night at home and a tremendous pain in my lower back and I knew something seriously was wrong because I don't have back pain. Um, the next day after that, we actually actually ring an ambulance again. This time, they admitted me. Um, my wife was on the car park talking to a doctor on the phone, uh, begging him to look into transverse myelitis, which would, these are the symptoms I was showing. Uh, eventually, they did. They did a lumbar puncture. They looked at my medical records. Um, once I did a lumbar puncture, they found that the proteins were very high in the, in the, the fluid that they he examined and um, decided to take me straight down to uh, ICU. My lungs were uh, decreasing. I, would, I could hardly breathe. I was put on a ventilator, um, a feeding tube, a catheter, and um, I was paralyzed at this, at this stage. I, when I was in ICU, I couldn't move, couldn't talk. Um, my wife came to see me uh, twice a day. Once in the morning, once at night. Uh, the morning part was the the uh, cleaning side of me. She did all the cleaning for me, and uh, the, the night time was the local the visit and just chat to me basically. Um, I spent seven months, seven and a half months in the ICU. During that time, I had pneumonia twice, MRSA, collapsed lung. Um, Managed to come through that eventually at the other end, seven and a half months, still paralyzed though, and still with the tracheotomy, um, helping me to breathe on a ventilator. Um, they moved me upstairs to uh, respiratory, which I spent another seven months up there. Um, they did very well with me, the, the physios there, they got me off the, respir uh, the, re the tracheotomy eventually. It took a long, long time. They got me off that. Um, I was then moved to a, um, a ward where I was going to be start doing physio. And um, I spent, I don't know how long I spent there, uh, probably five months, six months. You were into May. Yeah, I was into May this year. And 
I was being hoisted out of bed, everything else, until they got me on a frame, uh, lifting, lifting me out of bed, putting me on a frame, trying to learn me to walk, and so on and so on. Um, I came home, because uh, I've got no grip on my hands, as you can see. It's also affected all my knuckles and everything else, and I can't clench a fist or hold anything. Um, I came home, and um, still getting through the physio. I was out for eight weeks. Uh, using a wheelchair, using a um, hand frame and crutches. And I managed to fall over, fracture me up, and I was back in hospital again for a plate and three screws to be fitted to me. Um, it was to do with bone density. I managed to get over the, uh, the fracture uh, quite quickly. That was nothing compared to what I had gone through. So I managed to get over that, and I'm still now learning to walk. Uh, I've got um, damage in my feet and my legs, which are uh, numb all the time, and I get pins and needles. And obviously, I can't still can't use my hands, so using crutches, I have to be very careful as well. Uh, so, Tony, if if I can just uh, come back in, so just. To... Um, make it very clear you you spent well over a year in hospital well you're talking about yeah. a seven month stint in ICU followed by seven months in the respiratory ward and that's 14 months and then extra time on on a ward with physiotherapy so how, how long have you spent in hospital altogether 14 and a half months. I think you've just got mixed up with that. Yeah, 14 and a half months altogether, Brian. But you're still in um, the physio rehab now. I'm still in the physio rehab now, so I attend every single week, you know. Um, right. And Tony, that's you're... still a long time. don't like to ask personal questions, but I think you're, you're about 55, is that correct? Um, 59 now. 59. 16. Okay, yeah. and and can can you just tell us what you were were doing when you were working? What what was your job? I was a security manager, um, the, uh, managing so many officers, and uh, also the, the cleaning side. I was facilities. I was doing that as well, managing those. Uh, Sixty hours a week, Monday to Friday. Sometimes seventy-two. Well, I went in at weekends sometimes. Enjoyed the job. It was long hours, but I did enjoy it. Right, and so that that was. A, that was quite an active job. Yeah. Physically, that was that was a physical job that you were doing. It was, yes. I'd have to walk around site all over the place, so I could do about three mile a day walking. Right. So when when you first started to um, experience the symptoms that you've described, how long did it take before you actually got a diagnosis? via the hospital via the nhs i know that nicola did a, was doing a lot of research and you've mentioned the transverse myelitis but uh, when did you actually get a diagnosis from from the hospital itself that you were suffering from a, a vaccine adverse reaction um i think it was about a week um I was sent down to, like I say, I was sent down to ICU after going into the assessment ward. Uh, it took about a they week. They said it was um, Guillain-Barre then. They, yeah, after the, they said it was Guillain-Barre then. After they didn't the, say it was vaccine-induced. But they didn't, yeah, they didn't say it was vaccine-induced at first. Well, and, it was, yeah. it was just. 
Uh, I'm sorry. Did did they ever say it was was vaccine induced, or what? What were you actually Eventually. being told? Yeah, one doctor did. Apparently, one doctor when did. When your proteins were out. Yeah, when when they did the lumbar puncture and did the tests, he that was when the doctor came to him and he says, "We believe it's vaccine induced." Right, but and and did on. did that go on the written records? It has gone on your critical report, it, yes. It is it is on my critical reports now. As post AstraZeneca. As post it's GBS. put down as post AstraZeneca. GBS. GBS. Oh, okay. And did did the hospital um, submit a yellow card form for you? We don't know. According to my wife, um she didn't, didn't know me. nothing about the yellow card. I did it myself. Yeah. We uh, Nicola Nick, Nicky looked into this, found out that you're supposed to be you're supposed to have a yellow card filled in, and uh, she did it herself. So our doctor didn't even do but it. But they didn't it, tell me course. they did one. Um, right. Okay. So, so so when when you did that because because I know I know you're sitting there with with Tony that that's fine Nicola when when you submitted that card, what response did you get from the MHRA? Uh, just a standard response. They received it, um, and they were sorry for what has happened. Then I had to update the yellow card because Tony's condition worsened, so I updated him with his condition that he'd been moved into critical and ventilated. Um, again, it was just an automated response. Um, sorry to hear this. We've received it, but... I could never get any more information from them with that. Right. Uh, so we have asked uh, Sir Christopher Chope has asked uh, the MHRA to release the findings yeah. on the people that's been affected, and they won't. So, um, and Genomics have had his DNA, his DNA for research, and I've tried to contact Genomics and find out any findings from that, but that's been unsuccessful too. Okay. So you end up spending this protracted length of time in hospital and you, and you come out and you've still got what, what seemed to me to be quite severe disabilities. Um, yeah. What help have you received? I mean, how do you cope now? How, how do you pay the bills? How do you get by? Um, I have received... We... You, you... <sighs> Took us ages and ages to go through the benefit system. Yeah. And the benefit system, I had to keep going for work interviews, job coach work interviews, <laughs> whilst he was in hospital. Um, and obviously the benefits was nowhere near what his wage was. Um, so we, I managed to get through the time he was in hospital with fam help from family, financially. Then. Um, Tony receive, receives PIP now, personal independence payment. Yeah. But again, it's nowhere near what his wage used to be. Um, and he, through battling and battling, he actually got awarded from the VDPS, the Vaccine Damage Payment Scheme. Um, right. And that now is at the point is helping us to pay bills yeah. because obviously PIP isn't enough to pay the bills and um, we've actually actually got pay now for 
obviously we pay for a stair lift. Yeah. We're having the bathroom adapted. That's why we're actually not at home now. The bathroom is being adapted for Tony. And well, um, we've that we're using that to pay for these things. Right. And um can I ask, you know, when you when you were uh you were caught up in the midst of this, uh you didn't get any any help back from the MHRA. Where no. where was the first place? Okay, and the benefits you've talked about, were there any other organizations that you turn to for some help i went to the gains charity uh they would not didn't acknowledge vaccine caused it um and i knew from reading the peer-reviewed studies that i'd read that it had caused uh, gbs had been caused through vaccine in the past and um this was the only charity there for beyond barry syndrome um so Myself and another person through the group we met through Hosfeld lawyers in yeah, sure. um, VIB UK. We found the same that they got the same from Gaines Charity. No support, no acknowledgement. The vaccine had caused this, um, which we found absurd because then, um, as I was looking into things, I heard that a Professor Lund was on the board of directors there. And this Professor Lund is the neurologist, I believe, at um, UCL, right. University College London. I believe they have been advising government. Um, we actually spoke as well, Brian, to a BBC reporter when Tony came out of hospital. And he has actually been to our home and he has recorded with Tony and the BBC won't run it. It wasn't sure. Um, how, how, may I ask how long ago that was? Just as a matter of May. interest. It was when, when he came, about the end of May, when he came out of hospital. Yeah. This BBC reporter had been following the immunoglobin database and saw there was a shortage. Well, that's what they use when they give IVG treatments. I had IVG and uh, plasma. plasma. And it has to be recorded on a immunoglobin database when that treatment is given. And uh, I saw a peer review study that showed that it was it did rise when the vaccination started um i put all this yeah. to the reporter and the reporter put this to this professor lon who was very condescending to him uh, told him he needed a lesson into statistics and um then i found that he was on the i believe he is on this board of directors with, with the gain charity too yeah so i thought well yes that's why they're not saying that it's the vaccine mm -hmm. and then i also come across he has a conflict of interest with astrazeneca too so the corruption there to me was speaking volumes so my trust completely went in, in all the systems right she also wrote into 40, MP, 40 mps and not one mp uh, commented back got back so we, just none of all this has added up along the way for us um and then it was only through the pressure of putting the, these papers to this BBC reporter and him to putting them to this professor Lund. By October, then they announced that Guillaume Barry was on the adverse reactions on the MHRA. That was October. And that was October. Um, right. All so, this has been suppressed media. So did you did you try and chase that BBC reporter to see why 
why he, yes, why he wasn't running the story. Yeah, he says he, he said their lawyers mm. come into it, they wouldn't let him run this, they wouldn't let him say that. He wanted to take it somewhere else um, constantly. So the BBC, and, and he has, he's, he's been adamant he wanted to get the story out, um, but the BBC won't run it. Yeah. Right. So that's uh, as we, far as I've got with that. Uh, but we Nicola, wanted to warn people. I'm sorry, I've interrupted you there. Carry on. We just wanted to warn people of what symptoms to look out for because yeah. we haven't got a clue what was happening to Yeah, these, these symptoms weren't on the sheet that they showed me before the vaccine. Yeah. It was just a normal thing of maybe nausea, feeling a bit tired, headaches maybe. Ache. <laughs> that was all I saw on they that sheet. They weren't giving us any symptoms, yeah. what to look out for and how bad Tony was. That's dangerous and that's dangerous for the rest of the public. Yes. Mm. And of course, it's happened to a great many people who who, who yeah. have been vaccinated. There's five hundred and nine cases that sit on the AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca data print, saying that people and five deaths reported the GBS and five deaths. Yeah. Yes, so that's a massive increase. There was fifty two cases when Tony was admitted in March twenty one. Yeah, and that has risen to five hundred and nine since then. And they still say it's rare. <clears throat> and to Tony, I and think I'm right. Tony, I think I'm right in saying there were other men on the ward who had similar conditions to yours. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Every time we saw a doctor, they were saying, this is rare, this is really rare. But there was two people across from me who had the same condition as me, GBS. Yeah. But they didn't tell us about them. They didn't, they, yeah, they wouldn't tell us about that, which is, yeah, I can understand that patient confidentiality, you can't. Can't do that, but but it's a local area. And it's we a local were... area, and they didn't know my wife was going to talk to one of those guys as soon as he left hospital. <laughs> and I spoke <laughs> to one of them who was actually in the hospital. Yeah, so yeah, um, but he didn't go as severe as Tony. He didn't go as severe as me. Uh, Tony, did you get the opportunity to talk to any of the other patients so that you were able to talk on a sort of one-to-one -one basis to find out what had happened to to the others? None, because one, I had the tracheotomy and so I couldn't speak anyway. Um, and I, I was lip reading with me. Lip reading with my my wife, and you know, I was passing things. She was passing things on to me, and so on. Um, I'd just like to say, Brian, there was one, there was one situation when I was in hospital, and I was lying in bed and I couldn't move, I couldn't talk, and they used to leave the the door open in the summer. The fire door just to keep it cool in the in the ward, which I understood, you know, for the nurses. And there's this one particular night, this guy walked in. Oh, no, he, he didn't have any kind of uniform on or any hospital uniforms. He was in civilian clothes. He walked to the bottom of my bed where he was met by a nurse. And he said to the nurse, You made me do this. And then stabbed himself in the chest and killed himself. He actually died that night. I didn't know at the time how vulnerable I was. Because you were in that much pain. Because I couldn't move and I couldn't talk. So if they come to me, that would have been it. Um, you couldn't raise your hands. I know through, uh, through drugs and everything else, I did suffer from hallucinations. I know that. Uh, but I know this wasn't a hallucination because the, news, the right. nurse spoke to my wife about it as well. Been saying an that there been an incident. Right. And I already told my wife what the incident was. They were was. concerned what you'd seen, uh, yeah, aren't they? They were concerned, yeah. Uh, Tony Nicola, just have to say gently, just when you're speaking, just one at one at a time. 
please. Yep. Uh, because otherwise it just makes it a little bit difficult for the for the audience listening. Your interaction together is perfect, but just just uh, try not to speak over each other. Um, that that is that is an incredible story. Um, just tell us again. Tell it to say it again, Tony, if you would, and and then Nicola just add um, what you'd like to about your contact with the nurse. So I, I was lying in bed one night, middle of summer, paralysed, couldn't talk. I used to leave the fire exit door open, uh, slightly ajar, just to let the, the cool wind in, um, the nurses, which I understood. This one particular night, a gentleman walked in. He had no uh, hospital uniform on, so I knew he didn't work for the hospital. He had civilian clothes on, walked to the bottom of my bed, and it was met by a nurse who asked him what, what he was doing there. And he just turned around and said, you maybe do this. And proceeded to stick a knife in his chest. Um, the guy did die that night. Um, I, I asked the nurse about it. Um, and I know I was, I was on drugs when I was in hospital, loads of drugs. And I did hallucinate in there, but I knew this wasn't a hallucination. The reason I know is because they contacted my wife and said there'd been an incident in hospital, and they were concerned for they were concerned for me, um, or what I saw. And I remember the nurse asking me, "What did you see? Are you okay? Uh, do you feel okay? You know, do you need to talk to anybody?" And um, they also spoke to Nikki as well. But I'd already told Nikki anyway when she first came in to see me before the nurse came to her. Right. So yeah. So that. Was... Go yeah. Ahead, so Brian, that's. The nurse actually um, rang me and said, there's been an incident, nothing, Tony's okay, but um, we'll speak to you when you come in to see him. So when I went in, I'd already seen Tony and he says, oh, a man stabbed himself at the bottom of my bed. And I went, oh, <laughs> and I, I, I thought, he can't be seeing things. But then the nurse came to me and she says, we did have an incident and we've spoken to Tony because we're concerned of what he saw and how he'd be. Um, and I just assured him that Tony has got a very strong character. Not, you know, normally the work he did because he was in security, he came up across a few hair raising moments, you know what I mean? So he was quite used to dealing and with public. Um, so, um, I assured them he was okay, but they did send a psychologist did come in onto the ward to speak to Tony yeah. through that time. Um, but then it wasn't until later when he came home, I think, that he, he realised how vulnerable he was because he was lying there and he couldn't even raise his hands. So if that guy had turned to him, he'd got no chance of doing anything. But, you know, it, it was a time where I think if these patients weren't mm -hmm. being listened to, like Tony wasn't being listened to, Tony wasn't admitted straight away, we had to battle to get Tony in the hospital. Yeah. And I can only imagine if somebody else was being left, not being seen to properly, how that, because Tony would have died if he hadn't got in that hospital. Definitely. So that is the fact and how poorly he was and had the pain he was in. I yes. don't know what other people were going through at that time either. So, mm. um, but no, it wasn't a very nice experience on top of everything else he was dealing with. Uh, I, uh, I, to have to I find I find it 
incredible what what you've just told me um without going into all the details many years ago there was yeah. an incident in a hospital in plymouth which uh, involved my mother-in-law and um uh, as a result of that there was in a major inquiry around what had happened to her and part of that inquiry was to do with um, unknown persons appearing on the ward um, but the point I want to make is that that resulted in uh, a, a full investigation and ultimately um, sadly my, my mother-in-law died um, and uh, the coroner's inquest a number of, of facts came out but what I learned from from the whole tragic incident was that uh, at least there was a, a formal investigation into it. I you were te you were telling me what Indeed, happened, really. and what I'm thinking immediately is, where is the investigation into that incident, and have you been provided with with any formal report? There's uh, been about... no opportunity. There's been no opportunity for that at all, Brian. To any of this we have still constantly just had the battle to deal with getting through what we're going through now in the vdps which we're still battling to reform and change to help people and help the others so but we haven't had the opportunity to even speak about this yeah right this is only with the likes of yourselves and also gb news we've spoken yeah, with and we have been hit with brick walls at every opportunity, which again we find sinister, absurd. You, you, it, yes. you class as anti-vaxxers if you say anything, but we're not. I'm not you know, he, he actually vaxxers. went for it, so you can't even say that. You know, um, yes. but then to be shut down the way we have with everything, and that isn't just us. That is our group Vib UK, who. Um, we set up with the people who've been affected. All our group have diagnosis um, or death certificates, sadly. Yeah. Um, we have been trying to change and reform the VDPS to help people. We've also been trying to get this acknowledged publicly that people aren't getting diagnosed still. There's still GPs and doctors in hospitals who aren't acknowledging this vaccine injury with people. They're just sending them for tests or saying they've got a viral. Yeah. Right. They're not what, really diagnosing it. What about your own GP? What role did they play? We've never seen our own GPs still to this day. They've never been in touch and asked to see Tony or support him. We've had to go and ring them for medical situations at the moment with Tony still. And when we go up there, we normally see a training doctor or yeah, a training. standing doctor. We've never ever seen our original GPs no. from right. the day one. But I complained to our GP uh, because they didn't prioritise Tony when we rang the surgery twice. Yeah, right. And are, we haven't seen. Are, are you just able to tell us um, the area that you're in, and are you able to name the hospital for us? Yeah, we're in we're in Stoke on Trent, and it is um, Royal Stoke. Right. Okay. University so, Hospital. OK, thank you for that. And I'd just like to jump back. You, the BBC initially got involved, but then didn't report. Um, but you were, mm -hmm. I think, a little bit later able to talk to the Daily Mail. 
how did they react to 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 what you told them? I went through. Um, I actually got in touch, Brian, with a um, somebody who wrote about four cases in Nottingham of GBS that had occurred, and I emailed the guy who wrote on that, and then they got they put me in touch with our local a local reporter, who then rang and spoke to us, and. It was when I spoke to him that, that they picked up off that local paper because I believe they're all connected and it went through quite a few major tabloids, um, Daily Mail, Mirror. They picked up off that local re reporter what he did. Um, and then you actually spoke to him to do a bit of a follow-up, didn't you, yourself, when okay. you come out? Because, like I say, we the BBC reporter had followed us since... <coughs> March, April, May, I'd been speaking to him in 21, and he followed us all year. He followed it all year. He knew that there was GBS cases, and he knew, and he knew we'd, Tony had been awarded, but the BBC still wouldn't run Tony's story. Yeah. Well. So I don't even entertain the BBC. Um, I know the government ran. I know they're all being told what to do and what they can and can't do. And that isn't right. No, it's not right at all. So how did you manage to come? You've mentioned Sir Christopher Chope briefly. And of course, recently there was a um, what sh was, should have been a very important all parliament, all party parliamentary group meeting about vaccines and vaccine damage. How did you come into contact with Sir Christopher Chope? It was uh, via Hosfold. Um, mm. Like I say, our group um, have tried to go about things all the right way. We haven't, uh, you know, Sir Christopher Choke come on board and supported our campaign. Um, and he's been trying endlessly to get support from other MPs, which a few more MPs have come on board and been helping their constituents. Sadly, ours hasn't helped us. No. Um, we've... Asked him to, you know, asked us to attend the APPG meeting. We've, you know, sent to when the debate was coming up with Sir Christopher Joke because he put a private um, vaccine damage bill in. So we've tried to get the support of MPs, and but some MPs just won't put their edible parapet on this, which I think is sad because they should be there to help their constituents and support their constituents. Yes. Um, did you? Did you? We're not getting that from. Everybody. Did you both attend that all parliamentary, all part, all party parliamentary group meeting? We actually, yeah, we actually, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. We uh, we travelled in. We, even though we're away, we travelled into it because we thought it was important that people see that Tony isn't just a story, and neither is everybody else. The people, and there was a lot of people. There. You know, there's people's lives here that have been affected massively. Right, and, and Tony, how did you feel that meeting went? Well, there was two separate groups there. Um, there was us with the Bib UK, our, our guys, and there was another group there. UKCV. The UKCV. They were more, should I say, vocal. Um, we weren't sure what to expect. Yeah, we weren't sure what to expect from the meeting anyway. But um, Sir Christopher Chope really did. He did well. He did really good. And he had um, 
Dr. Malotra. Dr. Malotra there, who's a, a top cardiologist in the UK. And he was there and he spoke about uh, pharma, big pharma companies, Pfizer and uh, AstraZeneca, because he is father actually died from a heart attack after the, um, I think it was the AstraZeneca. He believes after the He believes he was there. We didn't know what to expect from the APPG. We hadn't been one before. No. We just know it was hopefully going draw attention to the other MPs to say, look, yeah. this is what's happening. These are the this is what's happening to people. We we hope that we get the opportunity to speak more about personally what's happened to ourselves. But mm. we have registered hopefully to speak within the COVID inquiry at some point yeah. with Baroness Hallett and uh, following that route too, uh, because like I say, this is people's lives, it's affected and they can't just brush this under the carpet. Like now, we're not hearing nothing about what AstraZeneca has done. Yeah. Um, we know that Pfizer has caused myocarditis and periocarditis, but AstraZeneca has also caused injuries. So they need to start being a bit more upfront with the public about this. <clears throat> yes. Well, certainly UK Column agrees with that. And uh, we've worked very hard over the last 18 months to try and uh, give people a voice as to what's been happening. And we, I think we're allowed to say we've been quite successful in getting professionals to speak out. So we, we've covered groups of doctors, um, some uh, international, um, some based in UK, but people who've spoken out with their concerns about the whole of the vaccine agenda and the fact that uh, there is no follow-up on what the, the real damage uh, that's been done and what what the, the adverse effects are. Uh, we were also able to interview Dr. Uh, Christian Perron, a French uh, doctor who originally was in charge of the whole of the vaccine system in France. And in a very candid interview with, with us, he, he, he said that he thought that what was happening was crazy. We've been able to talk to um, experienced professionals who've worked inside the pharmaceutical industry itself and they've given us testimony that the time scales that were used in order to create these vaccines were so short uh, that the firms concerned couldn't possibly have been able to meet the safety considerations. So we have put forward a lot of professional groups um, UK-based, US-based, uh, a mix internationally. We did a specialist uh, event with a French group, uh, which included uh, Christian Perron again, and uh, other um, professionals on the side, including now some GPs uh, here in UK. And all of them are saying effectively that it's outrageous that the government will not engage over the fact that the evidence, their evidence, clearly shows that a very large number of people have been injured as a result of vaccines. And unfortunately, the statistics appear to show that several thousand people have died. So we, we have also experienced the stone wall that you mentioned. And uh, this really is outrageous. And of course, it leads, leads us and a great many other people to believe that the government are desperate to cover something up. 
do you, do you think that's a fair <laughs> comment, Tony, or do you think it's a bit strong? I think you're um, spot on there, Brian, actually. Uh, I do think the government are definitely covering something up. Um, we've got to remember this vaccine hasn't even got a license from the Medical Council. They, they, I don't think they'll ever get a license. Um, yes, I think. But then it's just it's mad how they're doing it. Why would they do this to children mm. who don't need it? Yeah. Why would they be pushing this still without having these upfront discussions? It's just so sinister and yeah. corrupt. And it's like Big Pharma are deciding government policy. Yeah, that's what it seems like to us. Yes. The pharma companies are. It's like MHRA are funded by Pharma, so we're not going to get any findings off the MHRA because Big Pharma fund them. They don't want them to release it, not going to release it, which is wrong in itself. They're supposed to be, you know, it needs to be independent. Yes, what you say is, is absolutely correct. The MHRA are clearly in bed with the pharmaceutical companies there. The fact they claim to be a regulator and a safety regulator from everything mm-hmm. we've seen, and we've had a lot of correspondence with them, they always refuse to answer the questions, or else you're given what I call a fob-off reply, a dismissive reply, that they do not want to engage on the issue of vac- vaccine safety. T- Tony, it must be very difficult for you to look back and you think about the day you had that vaccination but you were like a great many other people you followed the government's advice and we know from talking to other people who've who've been vaccinated that a great many of them did it because they felt it was the right thing to do and they were many of them concerned about protecting elderly relatives and things so how do you now feel about the fact that you had a vac- a vaccination and then you suffered as a result of that. What what would you say to the what would you say to the government about your experience? They've ruined my life. Um, they've ruined my working life. They've ruined my social life. They've ruined part of my family life. If it wasn't for my wife, I wouldn't be here. I don't think. Um, I wish. I wish something had happened that I wouldn't. I didn't want. I wouldn't have t- taken that vaccine. Uh, I can't you turn wish back time more now. information. Yeah, I wish I'd, I wish I'd had looked more into vaccines more into and what and, and what they can do and what side effects you can get off vaccines. I'd have may I may have decided not to have the vaccine. I mean, I was like you say, we were all following the government guidelines. The, the, the big lie of protect yourself and protect others. We all know now that it doesn't protect others. You can still pass the, the, the virus on, even whether, even if you were vaccinated or not. Mm. It doesn't matter. You'll, you'll still pass it on and you'll still catch it. So, you, you know. Um, I won't trust government again. It's, it's <clears throat> I can't believe how gullible I was to believe what they were saying in the first place. So it's lost my trust in government and GPs. Um, and not, only, and not only that, Brian. It, it doesn't. It's it's not just us who, do, who don't trust the government or the NHS or any any government funded uh, organisation. It's now my children and probably my children's children. 
it runs through the generations. Don't trust them. Don't trust what the government say. Don't trust. I'm always telling my grandkids that. I'm always no. telling my my children that. <laughs> no. Now I am. I used to. I used to trust the government 100 on what they said, but not anymore. That's why you went for the vaccine. And that's why I went for the vaccine in the first place. Well, uh, of course, a key point is that under the NHS, its own rules, the rules of the NHS, it says that people should make an inform, be able to make a, an informed choice with uh, mm. with pharmaceutical products. And we have also heard time and time again from people that either they weren't given any um, uh, detail about possible side effects, or those side effects were minimised. Quite a few people didn't receive the paperwork uh, talking about side effects until after they'd been vaccinated. So the, they describe a pipeline where it was pressure to be vaccinated, and once you'd been jabbed, then you were given the documentation talking about possible side effects. So we can see that across the country, the whole of the vaccination program was very devious in, to my mind, devious in the way it was set up. And a lot of, I think even the NHS staff were very gullible in following the guidelines without really thinking through they had a duty to inform people of possible risks. They feared losing the job if they spoke out, Ms. Probably. Yeah, I, I have. Uh, like I say, I was on the front line, and some of the nurses I saw, um, one one particular one said, "I won't be here next week." I asked her why, and she said, "Because if I don't take the vaccine, I won't have a job. So I'm going to leave the job and go into something else." I don't know, I was, wow, you know, I was thinking, well, and the that's so, when the, a few nurses left, didn't they, with, and with these mandates, and yeah, a couple of nurses left, and I think one doctor left as well. Um, and then three days before that deadline, that mandate deadline, the government turned around and said, no, you don't have to have the vaccine anymore. And that was because Dr. Steve James went on tally. Yeah. And yeah. they stopped then the vaccines, didn't they, for the, the mandates for them? Yeah. Yeah, so, so policy was effectively just stopped, reversed almost. And, uh, and, and then the government has not engaged, hasn't talked about it, hasn't been challenged by any significant media organisation. It's pretty incredible. I have another question for you, Tony, and that is what, what would you like to say to other people who have suffered a vaccine adverse reaction? What would your advice be to them? Or indeed, what, what's your advice to somebody who's been vaccinated but really only had some mild side effects? Um, now, I'd, I'd, I'd advise them to seek out the truth because a lot of doctors are saying it's viral or blaming it on something else. We know of people who've, um, who've had uh, blood clots yeah, and similar symptoms of those in the group. different vaccine, vaccines to, to the, the people who are in our group. And they've now they are now being told that it's a viral or it's something else, or We've it's something else. We've just got to send you for tests. We've got to send you for tests, and that's all the same thing. Tell them stay strong. Stay strong, keep going. And look at the peer review papers. Yeah, look at, do your studies, look into it, and find out what the truth is. Right. Because the government won't tell you. And, and do, do you feel that um, the vaccine um, 
as people are coming forward and realizing that they are suffering a, an adverse reaction, um, do, do you think that the voluntary groups that are forming are a good good place to to start to uh, what to meet other people to be able to share experiences is that a positive thing yeah definitely um i'll let my wife explain about that one because she was the one who, who actually got into the uh, the group that the we're Vib, in vib oh. uk are there campaigning but also helping to steer people in what to do um where to go how to go about getting the records, how to go about reporting yeah. on the yellow report card, just that background stuff that we hadn't got a clue about. And I suppose these people won't either. So we're just trying to give them direction on what can help them. Um, and we are hoping the government come on board with this and start helping the people yeah. who've been injured or the people who've been bereaved and have lost people through this. There's even children who've lost their parents. They've had no mental support. No. And these are young children no. who've lost their mum, their dad, no. you know, and there's no support through everybody that's been affected. And uh, we, I mean, Vib UK, a lot of people, even if they aren't a member of the Vib UK, no, they're still giving advice. To help people, so. We're there, on, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, people can see, and it's it's the people on the group, it's their stories, what's happened, they'll be able to read them, and they might think their symptoms have been very similar, but it gives them a starting base, you know, to where to go from. Where to go from. Yes, and we, we've heard from speaking to other, other people, Nicola, that um, a lot of people felt very, very lonely, and in fact, afraid when they... Um, they realised that they had a problem and and they tell us that they yeah, didn't know who they could right. speak to. They should be able to go to their GP and their GP should be upfront and honest with them, but GPs aren't being. Mm. And that straight away is just so wrong. Yeah. I'm going to thank you both. Um, very much for speaking to me. We, we think it's important that we try and tell people the truth and we warn as many people as possible about your experience and the experience of the other people who've been badly affected. Um, but I also wanted to say something else, and that is that when, when I spoke to um, Nicola back in, in the beginning of 2021, um, it was apparent to me, Nicola, that you were a lady who was were not going to stand idly by and Tony, you've you've just said that if you hadn't got into hospital at that time, things might have gone sort of badly, uh, worse. Um, so I think that between the two of you, um, you've looked after, looked out for each other extremely well, and that's a very positive thing. I felt after my initial contact that I, I, I couldn't possibly appear to pressurise you, so I stayed off to one side, but. For many months, I was very uh, worried about what was happening. Um, and uh, I think I'm, I've got to say that today, I'm delighted to see you at home. And uh, you've been smiling, which is a very important thing, albeit you've been through a very, very tough time. But clearly, you're a tough guy. 
what are your plans for the future? Have you got your mind set on things that you'd like to be able to achieve? I don't know. <laughs> At the minute, I'm just testing myself to see how far I can actually walk, but I'm still on crutches at the minute. Um, still can't walk. Still can't indeed. walk properly. Still got pins and needles in my legs and my feet. And I can't feel those. Every and day is a bonus. Isn't it? Yeah, every day is a bonus. And the small changes happen every month. People notice the small changes, but they're only small changes. So it's a long, long process. Um, we don't know what the future holds, do we? No. no. No doctor can tell you that either. I'd love to go back to work, but I, I don't know. Right. And no doctor your data when, <laughs> what, what could happen and when it could happen. I don't know. So, yeah. Well, Tony Nicola, I'm going to say thank you very much for talking to me today. Um, I've learned a Brian. lot fr from what you've described. And, and I'm going to say, I hope you'll stay in touch with us because um, all of you, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about the community out there now of people who've been affected. It's clear to me that they are starting to work together and uh, in our own small way of helping to get out um, <coughs> the facts and the story for people, we, we'd like to stay with you and to help if we can. That'd be brilliant, Brian. Thank you. That's great. Okay, Tony Nicola, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, um, well, I could have asked a lot of questions there, but we, we've learnt over the years that often to get the message out, you keep it as short as possible. Um, but uh, my goodness, you've been through the wars, Tony. Just a bit. Just a bit. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. some stages where I, even I didn't think I was going to make it, Brian. Um, uh, there was a couple of occasions I actually thought I was going. That was it. I was going to die. Yeah. Um, one thing so, I should have said in the end. Well, at the the end of the day, you must have also come to, in contact with some good people in the NHS system. There was, there was there was some good yeah, nurses was. and really, some, good, some really good nurses and doctors. You yeah. know, um, it's yeah. just saying they can't all sing off the same sheet. Yeah, because they've got you different know. departments. They all got the same their own budgets, and they have to stick to their budgets. And it it's was, also how how some were really out up front about the vaccine injury. Yeah, really. some were, some were really up front. Some weren't. Some are weird. Some are like dismissing it completely. And I, I didn't understand that, even though they all saying we're for the same company, but. Hey, oh. Yeah. 